Some people go home on Sunday afternoon and they have to relax, they take a nap. Other people go home and cut the grass. Some people would say that's sinful. Some people would say it's not. Some would say, kids, look, we're not gonna play ball on Sunday. Other dads would say, this is a great day in which to play ball. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We have spent this week in chapter 14 of our study in the book of Romans. We have seen that this chapter deals with what we might call gray areas in God's Word. Using the example of foods that might or might not be proper to eat, Dr. Brogy has noted that mature Christians need to guard their attitudes particularly when dealing with the behavior of newer Christians. As we pick up today, we'll see a second example outlined in our passage that instructs us to guard our actions. We are to guard our actions. We're to guard our actions in such a way that we would not cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Now again, I want to just introduce the concept today, and I hope to develop it more fully in the weeks ahead. But to help us to understand, Paul now gives us a second illustration. He moves from their arguments over diet to their arguments over days. Look at verse 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And so what exactly was the controversy between the weak Christians who regarded one day above another and the strong Christians who said every day is alike? Again, remember in the early church, you have Jews and Gentiles that had been brought together into one fellowship. And the Jews had been brought up under the old covenant law. They worshiped not on the first day of the week, but for centuries they'd worshiped on the seventh day of the week. And in addition, there was a number of special Sabbaths throughout the year, not to mention certain feasts and religious observances that a pious Jew would keep. By the way, don't stand up on a Sunday and say, Lord God, we just ask that you would bless this Sabbath day. Because this is not the Sabbath day. The seventh day of the week is the Sabbath day. We don't worship on the seventh day of the week. This is Sunday. This is the first day of the week. God changed the day that the church should worship on. Now listen, all Ten Commandments apply. They are still binding, but the application has changed. For instance, in the Fifth Commandment, God said, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's what God said. You can read it in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. That you may live long in the land. That may be well with you. When Paul comes to the New Testament in Ephesians 6, he says, Obey, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Same commandment, different application. God still establishes that one day in seven is a day in which God's people are to come apart into worship. But we don't do it on the seventh day of the week. We do it on the first day of the week. Now, in the early church, yes, on the Sabbath, they would go into the synagogues and in different places where the Jews met because God called them to carry the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But 15 years into the history of the church, when you come to Acts chapter 20, you find the church meeting on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week, the uh, Luke records, when we were gathered together to break bread, the Lord of the Sabbath changed the day in which God's people would worship. 
And so when you come into the epistles of the New Testament, you discover the church does not meet on Saturday, but on Sunday. So Paul said to the Corinthians, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Why Sunday? Why not the seventh day? Because the Sabbath was over during this dispensation. Now, it is interesting that during the millennial reign of Christ, Ezekiel the prophet teaches that we will worship once again on the seventh day, on Saturday. But right now, in honor of the resurrection, which is the central doctrine of the New Testament, it is the heralded doctrine of the New Testament. The cross, the death of Christ, has no meaning apart from the resurrection. The resurrection is a declaration that Christ was sinless, that He was Lord, and He was able to pay for our sins. Tens of thousands of men were crucified, but only one man came out of the grave. And so today, when we come into these issues of days, you have Christians who are still divided. You had some Jewish people who said, no, the seventh day, that's the day we should worship. And then you had these Gentiles in the early church where they came out of pagan idolatry. And just like the Jew that had certain holidays, their calendar was filled with holidays where they worshiped these false gods. And the thought to isolate one day in their mind was just obnoxious. And they said, no, every day is to be lived for the Lord. Every day is to be holy. And we shouldn't put Saturday or Sunday over the others. Well, and today, here in the 21st century, there are still basically four major camps. First, there are those Christians who worship on the seventh day of the week. They're typically called Seventh-day Adventists or Seventh-day Baptists. They don't worship on Sunday. They worship on Saturday. Now, I'm not here to defend whether or not Seventh-day Adventists are Christians or not. I've met some very godly Seventh-day Adventists, Adventists who have met the Lord. I know in many countries of the world, they're not considered Christians because they still practice and teach some of the damnable doctrines of Ellen G. White, who, for instance, said Jesus had a sin nature when he did not. But lay that aside, there are Adventists who teach salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but they do feel that the Sabbath day to worship is binding. They're confused. They don't understand the new covenant pattern. Then there are weaker brothers on this issue who um, basically say that the first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath. And by calling it the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, what they typically do, not always, but typically, they make certain principles that applied uniquely to the nation of Israel and they put them on the church. And they very often have a long list of things you can or cannot do on the Lord's day. In addition, there are those strong Christians who worship not on the seventh day, but the first day of the week. They recognize that it is a day to be refreshed spiritually, that they are to gather with God's people for worship. But unfortunately, there's a fourth category that is more and more categorizing Americans. And they do not see the Lord's Day as special at all. And they have actually moved from liberty into license. One man, after I got off the radio, was waiting for me, ready to ambush me, it seemed, at my office. And he said, I am my own pastor. I said, oh, great, where do you pastor? He said, well, I pastor my family. I said, oh, so your church on Sunday morning is in your home? Yes. Who are your members? Well, just me and my kids. I said, that's not a church. A church is not a Bible study. 
A church has certain characteristics in the New Testament. It has elders, it has deacons, it practices the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's committed to the Great Commission, helping to support missionaries. There are certain characteristics that make a New Testament church a New Testament church. So we've got some people who who write off the church and they redefine the church. And then you have many Christians today who are very sloppy in their worship. And they don't view Sunday as all that important. And if they feel like coming to church, they might. Hold your finger here for a moment and turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. I want you to see something. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Right before Matthew is the book of Malachi. And go to the first chapter, if you will. You know, we're talking about some issues, some gray areas. And Audrey and I were in a discussion last month over this. And we're saying, you know, when we first started teaching on staff with Campus Crusade in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a whole long list of issues that college students and Christians in America wanted us to address. Almost none of those things are even on the list today. Why? Because the church in America has become very worldly. You know, when I first became a Christian in 1975, approximately 75% of Americans were in church on any Sunday. Now today, only about 30%. Well, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, but one of the problems is, is God's people have become so sloppy They've lost their ability to be like light and salt, and it's lowered the standards for the rest of the culture. And so here in the book of Malachi, God affirms the need not to be in the category of sloppy worship, but holy worship. Now, remember in the early church, some of the only books they had were the Old Testament. For the first decade, they couldn't go to John's gospel or to Ephesians or Corinthians or Romans. All they had was the Old Testament. Uh, Paul never read the book of Revelation. You ever think about that? The apostle Paul never read the book of Revelation when he was on earth. Maybe he can read it in heaven. I don't know. But he, he never read it on earth because it hadn't been written. It was written after he died. And so they read the Old Testament. They read it in light of the new covenant and they applied it. But remember, this is not what God has said. This is what God is saying. All scripture, including the Old Testament, is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable. And so Malachi lived in a day where there was sloppy worship. And I believe one of the greatest problems in our day is not simply a lack of worship, but a lack of true worship. People come to church, they look around, they're checking off the order of service, they're planning their menus for the week. Some of them got their phones out, they're texting their friends across the auditorium. When is this pastor going to shut up? And, and when it's all over, they say, I'm glad my duty is over and I can go home. Well, God addresses this problem of sloppy worship. Look at Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name. So God begins by telling Israel he's a father, he's a master. His point is, is that a son honors, he obeys his father. And since Israel was God's son, God's firstborn, whom he brought out of Egypt, where was his honor? Where was his respect? Your boss calls you this afternoon. He said, I need you here at work tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. sharp. It's a critical meeting. I need you here at 8 and ready to go. And you say, well, well, boss, I, I don't think I can make it. Alarmed, he says, is there, is there a problem? Are you sick or something? What's going on? 
Well, you see, boss, tonight at 1 a.m. is my all-time favorite movie. They're going to show it on television. It's two and a half hours long. It's not going to end until 3.30, and I'm just going to be too tired at 8 a.m. I'll tell you what, let's move the meeting to 11 a.m. That would suit me just fine. And your boss says, why don't you just keep sleeping because you are fired? Now, in human relationships, when there's an authority over us, we recognize that he calls the shots. But somehow, when it comes to our relationship with the living God, the rules change. Sunday morning comes and God calls his people to gather on the first day of the week to worship. But because I stayed up late Saturday night playing and having fun, we want to sleep in on Sunday morning. And when the alarm rings and you're tired and you roll over, you say, I don't think I'll come. And some of you are watching me right now on television. (laughs) And you're tuning in because you didn't come to church today. Look, this TV ministry is not for those who, uh, you know, have the physical capability to come to church. It's for those like Dr. Keener and his wife. He's 100 years old. He can't make it to church, so he watches us on Sunday morning. It's for people like that, and it's for people who who don't care to go to church because they've never been born again, and we want to reach them. But it's not for people who won't go to church. That's disobedience. Yet somehow we change the rules. We go, God, I don't know if I feel like getting up and going to church. And God says, you don't feel like getting up. What if I don't wake you up? And we just write God off. And God says, I'm tired of you calling me father and master and not doing what I say. A son honors his father, a servant is master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord? Oh, priests who despise my name. It's a terrible thing when the priests who were the leaders in Israel displayed half-hearted worship. Now, please understand, under the new covenant, everyone in this room who's had a second birth is a priest. That's what the New Testament says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every New Testament child of God is a priest, and the principles that apply to their priesthood in terms of excellence and worship applies to us. But you say, how have we despised your name? If you know Malachi, six times over, he asks a question because he is highlighting one of their problems and one of their sins. And so he asks the question, then God answers it in verse seven. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. By their actions, they said the table of God, the place where they would prepare their sacrifices, where the animals were cut up, they were despising it. And so God is saying, it's easy to see how you've despised my name by the type of sacrifices you bring. Look at verse 8. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick... Is it not evil? God had specifically stated that the lambs and goats and sheeps and bullocks of the Old Testament sacrificial system were to be without spot and blemish because they were a picture of the sinless Messiah who would someday come and die for our sin. But a man would reason. Now, that's a beautiful animal. We don't want to give that animal to the Lord. We need to keep that one. But that one over there in the corner, kind of scrawny, we'll give him to the church. Or that one over there that's lame and limp, God can have that one. Or that one with cancer and covered in eczema, 
I don't need that. God can have that. That one that's blind and that one over there that's been attacked by a wolf, the Lord can have that. And it was mockery. In fact, when they would take an animal that was attacked by another animal, God said even the Jew was not to eat it. Why? Because God underscored as he did all the way through the pages of Scripture, the preciousness of blood because the life is in the blood. And so on the Exodus, God wrote, you shall be holy men to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Let me tell you what these people were doing. They were bringing to God their dog food. They were giving God their leftovers. And so notice the second half of verse 8. God asked, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? God is saying, take those sacrifices to your governor and see what he says. Not even the king. Just try it on the Persian satrap, the governor who's over you locally. Oh, governor, you're such a wonderful leader. I want you to have this scrawny, flea-bitten, lame, cancerous animal as an expression of my appreciation to you and for all that you've done. And God says, you'll find your governor won't even take it because even men do not accept leftovers. Here's the point. If men who rule men do not take leftovers, then should the living God be given your leftovers? And so, in short, these priests, by their model of half-hearted worship, were giving God their leftovers. I was once in a church where the people had the freedom to donate certain items and There was a man in the church who had a ministry and he would sell it and he would translate it into money used for missions. And after a while, people were just bringing junk that the Salvation Army didn't even want. And 80% of it, they were just throwing into the dumpster and it became so much work, the elders of the church said, that's enough. Please don't bring any more. And I can hear God saying to some of those members, give that to your governor. It's April 15th. It's time to pay the IRS your taxes. And you write a note to him, friend, in, in, in our home this year, it's been tough. Oh, some of the kids were sick. We had unplanned hospital bills. Not to mention that new boat I bought. Well, the payments just seemed more challenging than I originally thought. So we want you to know this year, we're not going to pay our income tax. It's not that we don't love you. We just can't do it. We have other priorities. And God says, give that to your governor. Christian people, they pay their bills. They make sure that their desires and their wants are met. And if there's anything left over, they give it to God. Would you treat your boss that way? The way some of God's people treat him and the Lord say, it's raining, it's cold like today. And some people rolled over in bed this morning. They looked out the window. It was just a gray, cold, wet day. And they thought, this is a great day to sleep in. You, you, you wake up tomorrow morning, it's a gray, cold day, and you sleep in? I think not. You're going to be at work. And God says, listen, I don't want your leftovers. Give that to your governor. See what your governor says. I don't want half-hearted worship. I want worship, and it's to be done first class. Look at verse 9. But now... You will not entreat God's, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Do you see what he's asking? He is exercising his right to divine sarcasm. We bring this half-hearted worship to the living God, but we have a need. 
Oh, we've got a child that's sick and we need divine intervention. We need God's help. We need God's mercy to give us a new job to pay the next bill. And yet we bring our half-hearted worship to the living God. Mark it well what God says. Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the gates. God is not your errand boy. He doesn't serve you. You serve him. God says, in essence, if you're going to give me your half-hearted worship and the only time you come to me with a passion and seriousness is when you have a need, I'd rather have the doors of the church shut than this half-hearted worship. Now go back to Romans chapter 14. I turn to the prophet Malachi because in our day, we have turned our liberty into license. And Romans 14 and verse 5 is used out of context by some Christians today who have concluded that the Lord's day is really not that important. But verse 5 has nothing to do with that. The Apostle Paul is dealing with those who thought they should worship on Saturday over Sunday because they were raised in Jewish homes. And in addition, he's dealing with those who had basically been following shadows that had been fulfilled in Christ. Look at verse 6 of Romans 14. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord does not eat and gives thanks to God. Some of you have convictions over what you can and cannot do on the Lord's day, issues that are not specifically spelled out in the Bible. Some of you, you will close your, your business on a Sunday, but you'll go to a restaurant on a Sunday. And your reason why I don't want my employees to work on the Lord's day, I want them to free to go to church, but you'll go to a restaurant that will make someone else work, and you do that because you have an evangelistic reason. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying the reason, the way some people reason. Some people go home on Sunday afternoon, and they have to relax. They take a nap. Other people go home and cut the grass. Some people would say that's sinful. Some people would say it's not. Some would say, kids, look, we're not going to play ball on Sunday. Other dads would say, this is a great day in which to play ball. Whatever your conviction, and we're going to discern in the weeks that will come six principles for expressing our liberty, look at verse 6, because it can be applied to our day. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord. We need to know how to exercise our liberty in Christ, and not just to give our kids a list of do's and don'ts. Wisdom dictates that we give them the scriptural principles. Now, we have a lot of freedom in Christ, freedoms that are to be governed not by license, but by the principles of the Word of God. And we ought to be able to say to our children, children, this is what dad and mom feel to be right, and here is the biblical principle that is governing the way we think. You don't just say, well, you do it because I said so. Listen, they're going to grow up into their adolescent years. They're going to move into adulthood where they need to express their own free will. And if you haven't governed and shaped that will through the principles of the Word of God, they may reject some of the things you said when they shouldn't for the simple reason you never gave them the principles to begin with. Now, we'll study it further next week, but we need to teach our kids not just a bunch of do's and don'ts, but the governing biblical principles in the context of a love relationship with God. Look at verse 7. We'll come to it next time. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
I wonder why some of you came to church this morning. I wonder why some of your children came to church. Are they learning the principles of why we worship on the first day of the week? This is one of the reasons the discovery class, our 45-week discipleship course, is so very important because it grounds parents in the principles of the Word of God that they can teach God's Word from. The Word of God must first be in our hearts, then we can teach it to our children. But it's amazing to me why so many people do come to church. I told you years ago about a church in the city of Atlanta that heard that, that was told that the President of the United States was going to worship with them on Sunday. And when the Sacred Service finally came and examined the building, they decided the security was not right, and they canceled and decided the President would not come. But news was already out across the city of Atlanta that the president was going to be there. And people who were non-members were calling. And people who were members who had not shown up in church in years were calling the church and wanting to come. They wanted to know if they could bring their friends, if they could reserve seats. And one lady called the pastor at his home. And she said, Pastor, is it true that the President of the United States is going to be in church on Sunday. If it's, if it's true, I want to come. And the pastor said, no, ma'am. The President of the United States will not be in our church on Sunday, but the King of Kings will, and that ought to be enough reason for you to come. Listen, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is right here in our midst. All hail the power of Christ's name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him this morning with excellent worship, Lord of all. I'll tell you why I came today. I came because I love the Lord. I came to worship the living God. And I came to bring him my very best. And I hope that's why you came. And if you've never met him, that's the first step. To call upon him in faith, knowing that in God's economy, you are spiritually bankrupt. You can do nothing to merit heaven. But Christ paid it all and all to him I owe. And you need to come through his death, burial, and resurrection to be saved. Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning that this is not simply what you have said, but this is what you are saying to your people. Give us ears to hear and our hearts to respond. I pray, our Father, in the days ahead, in this day of great license among your people, that we would understand the governing principles, that things that appear gray might become black and white, that we might know how it is that we individually are to apply some of these issues. I ask today, Father, for someone who is here who's never received Christ, someone in Bluffton, someone listening by radio or television, someone who does not have the assurance that if the trumpet of God sounded today, they would go to heaven. Help them to come in faith and trust that what your son did on the cross was sufficient to pay for all time our sin. You promise whoever will call in His name will be saved. My friend, if that's you, today is the day of salvation. I invite you there in your heart to say on the basis of Christ's death where He took your judgment and His resurrection where He proved He was able, I invite you to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, may we love Him passionately and not heart-heartedly. Some of us have been compromised in our hearts. And we need to repent and get right before you today. Help us to do it. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 
To listen again to this or any of the messages in the Romans series, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets available at the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or call and request Gray Area's program ROM65 on CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And you can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And also check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. When we return Monday, we'll proceed a little further in our study of Romans 14 and see what this letter says about guarding our behavior. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>